The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to actually discuss the early history of social engineering and broadcast media. And we're going to go back and look into uh, some examples uh, within the early 20th century of how exactly and why uh, social engineers picked up on the idea of broadcast media and uh, utilized it in order to bring about certain agendas in this place that we live. And we're going to look at the early history of that and a couple of the important players in this. And tonight, we're going to read primarily from a, uh, a paper here. Okay, this is a, uh, a paper that was submitted to the Department of political science on May 1987 in fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Bachelor of Science in Sociology. And this was a uh, paper written uh, for such purposes by a gentleman named Simpson L. Garfinkel. And this was uh, submitted to the Department of Political Science, and this is at MIT. Massachusetts Institute of Technology, May 1987. Uh, so the author submitted this research paper that he did as part of his graduate degree there uh, in order to d receive his Bachelor of Science in Sociology. Uh, so what he was writing about in particular was one particular gentleman who had a very important effect on sociology overall and the social sciences. And, you know, more importantly here, the aspect of it that we'll be focusing in on is how uh, this particular gentleman and some of his associates uh, honed in on the idea of broadcasting, and they did so with the genre of radio in its early advent. And the, the title of this paper is called Radio Research, McCarthyism, and Paul F. Lazarsfeld. And that's primarily the gentleman we'll be talking about tonight is Paul F. Lazarsfeld. And if you haven't heard that name before, I would strongly suggest you look this guy up because uh, he had a very significant impact on our modern society. And this is exactly why. Because of uh, some of the projects he took part in, in order to figure out different market research and different ways to utilize data to manipulate the public and use broadcasting systems such as radio to do so. Uh, so we're going to read from this paper and uh, let's start right here with the abstract. I'll begin reading. Does sociology contracted for political purposes have the desired effect of changing society? If not, what use does such research serve? This thesis is an examination of two major sociological research projects conducted by Paul F. Lazarsfeld, who lived from 1901 to 1976. The Radio Research Project, 
by the Office of Radio Research and the Borough of Applied Research, 1937 to 1948, and the Teacher Apprehension Study from 1954 to 1957, respectively funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation's Fund for the Republic. The history of the two foundations is presented and their motivations for funding the research in question explored. This thesis is based on careful reading of the works of Paul F. Lazarsfeld, including his books, articles, and personal files on file at the Rare Book and Manuscript Library of Columbia University and scattered secondary sources. It concludes by posing questions about the practical uses of sociological research findings. And that's the end of the abstract here. So that gives you a general description of what this guy was looking for when he wrote this thesis, right? This research thesis in order to get his bachelor's degree in sociology from MIT. Okay, so uh, this is another big uh, league school here, a big academic institution uh, that this guy was uh, actually uh, studying at. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and look at his introduction here. And as we go through this, of course, I will uh, go ahead and uh, give some little side notes on on various aspects of this uh, in order to connect the dots fully for people. So let's go ahead and we'll, we'll lay it all out here. Let's begin the reading in Introduction. Few people today outside the academic social sciences have heard the name of Paul F. Lazarsfeld, but between 1940 and 1960, his name was frequently mentioned in newspaper articles discussing radio and television. He was occasionally asked to testify before the Senate as a media expert. He earned the reputation of an expert in mass communication research for his studies at the Office of Radio Research, renamed in 1944 as the Columbia University Borough of Applied Social Research, at which he was the director between 1938 and 1949. In recent years, however, Lazarsfeld's qualitative contributions to the field of social sciences have been largely ignored for his methodological ones. Lazarsfeld himself believed his contributions to the field of social research were primarily methodological. In the 1930s and 40s, Lazarsfeld spearheaded the movement to quantify the social sciences. Going to pause there for a second. I'm going to read that again. Listen to how this is worded. Okay. In the 1930s and 40s, Lazarsfeld spearheaded the movement to quantify the social sciences. Uh, Do you see what we've been talking about? If you've been following uh, any of my broadcasts for any length of time, you'll understand when you hear the word quantify the importance of this idea. Uh, Because essentially, this has everything to do with cybernetics methodologies. They want to be able to quantify everything. They want to be able to measure everything to make it more controllable. That's what it's about. That's why you want to quantify something. If you find a subjective idea or something subjective like sociological uh, aspects of society, if you can quantify those and measure them in a certain way, then you can more easily effectuate change on some scale or another. And that's exactly what's been done here. And this guy was one of the forerunners of how to do this with broadcast technology, uh, starting first with radio and working into television. And now we're up in the age of the internet and social media and computers and all of that stuff. And it's all about data collection and collation of data and, uh, you know, utilizing this data 
for the purposes of steering public opinion on things, right? So that's that's essentially what he was uh, foundationally laying down here, okay? So let, let's read on. His techniques of sampling, paneling, interviewing, questionnaire construction, scaling, and survey analysis quickly dominated the field of American sociology and gave it the characteristic flavor it had in the 1950s and 1960s. His emphasis on methodology caused him to be termed by many a champion of value-free social science with an apolitical empiricism which dominated American sociology in the 1950s. Lazarsfeld himself wrote in the mid-1960s that a major purpose of sociology was to leave a supposedly unbiased historical record without attempting to settle issues of social relevance. His final formula for success was to avoid issues of controversy and fund the BASR, which stands for the Borough of Applied Social Research, uh, one of the primary purposes of which was to train graduate students for professional careers in sociology on outside contracts which were more concerned with data collection than predictions of final outcomes. Indeed, Lazarsfell was often criticized for turning the BASR into a, quote, quasi-marketing research firm with only few socially relevant and intellectually exciting projects, end quote. So I'm going to pause there for a moment. <clears throat> So essentially, this guy uh, was more concerned with data collection than anything else. He understood the importance of data, even way back then. We're talking going back to the 1930s, folks. Okay? Data collection. This is collecting as much data as possible upon uh, all of the, the public. As much as can be collected and collated together. And if you have all this data, if you have enough data points, well, then you could really do something with that. And that was the whole emphasis here. Uh, so that was primarily what he was interested in researching, okay, was collecting data, data collection processes with this stuff. Uh, so let, let's read on here. From the beginning, Lazarsfeld's research was rigorously mathematical and quantitative, owning to his training as a mathematician at the University of Vienna. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. Once again, quantitative mathematics. See how they, they try to, uh, they seek to quantify subjective things to make them more easily measurable, therefore making them more easily controllable. Because if you could understand the mechanism of action in a certain thing through quantifying it, then you could more easily control it. And that's what this guy was all about. I mean, he was... Uh, Pretty much, this is what he was trained for. Uh, you see, he's got uh, training in, in mathematics from the University of Vienna before he moved here to the U.S. and uh, took part at major universities here in these different uh, sociological studies. Uh, let's read on, though. It was in Vienna, too, that he adopted his practice of funding his organization mostly by outside contracts. And I'm going to pause there. That's going to be important here later, too, because uh, if you're funding it from with outside contracts, well, then, you know, that uh, that uh, takes the uh, pressure of having to provide funding from yourself or from, say, the university that you're working with to do it and uh, putting the funding in some outside uh, entity's hands there um, as far as that goes or, or having the funding provided from some outside entity. So that's essentially what he was seeking to do. So whoever was funding him, uh, he would... Uh, you know, 
do whatever research they wanted for them, but he would also go ahead and try to uh, push forward his ideas here about data collection and sociology and all the different things that he was trying to formulate here. Uh, so whoever the uh, whoever the financier was would be the benefactor of his work. Uh, so let's read on here, though. I don't want to get hung up on too many ideas, but he was big on mostly outside contracts, which also takes away, uh, you know, the, the liability of said university or employer that he's working for and shifts it into the hands of uh, some outside group, uh, which creates a situation where it's plausible deniability. And that's a very important thing with many of these social engineers of this world. And make no mistake, this guy was one of them, this Lazarsfeld. So uh, that being the case, he wanted plausible deniability in everything he was formulating here. Let's read on. But far from conducting value-free social science, Lazarsfeld started his career using sociology for highly political purposes. In one of his two autobiographical essays, he wrote that he had hoped to use sociology to help determine why the workers' revolution had failed in Vienna and suggest possible strategies for success. Gonna pause there. So he had political motivations, right? So he was trying to figure out, well, why did this socialist movement fail and what can we do to better do this next time so uh, think about that he was he was working towards socialism okay he was interested in achieving socialism and he was disappointed that it had failed in vienna and was wondering what could we do better to promote the idea of socialism so keep that in mind Let's read on. Lazarsfeld's willingness to pursue sociology for political purposes continued in the United States, although his direct participation in politics abruptly terminated when he immigrated to this country because he felt alienated by the American Socialist Party. Nevertheless, the political implications of his work gradually decreased in importance over the course of his career. Gonna pause there. At least that's what they want you to believe, folks. Make no mistake about it, this guy had some very big-time input into political things in this country during that time frame between 1940 and 1960. Uh, so don't let them fool you here by saying, oh, well, that, you know, his political views kind of fell off the radar and wasn't really an important thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, that's code talk for... Uh, um, much of what he did went on behind closed doors uh, with his political agenda. Okay, let's, let's put it that way. Let's read on, though. In the United States, Lazarsfeld's research on the impacts of radio on American society was both funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and pursued by Lazarsfeld for the expressed purpose of improving the quality and educational power of radio broadcasts. The reports which resulted from of this research effort and documents written by and about the Rockefeller Foundation speak to the political importance of the radio research work. And I'm going to pause there. So basically, he was interested in improving the quality and educational power of radio broadcasts. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means they wanted to use radio broadcasts, not just for entertainment purposes, or for just, uh, you know, expressing the news of the day, but to actually mold opinions and shape the minds of people. So he, he recognized early on the power of having this broadcast technology. Uh, 
the fact that you could reach a much larger audience and maybe steer their attitudes and opinions on things. Uh, so that's what that's about. And the Rockefeller Foundation rec- recognized it too. Because why do you think they got in on the ground floor funding all this stuff? Hmm? It's always these same couple of players that show up in a lot of these things. But let, let's read on here just to see what else it has to say. In 1955, Lazarsfeld conducted an in-depth study for the Ford Foundation's Fund for the Republic on the impacts of McCarthyism in academia, again for the political purpose of fighting the witch hunts against professors. And I'm going to pause there, folks. McCarthyism in academia. So this guy, even though it was claimed here earlier that his political leanings were largely inconsequential, Uh, later on in his career and during his career. Well, clearly, he had an agenda here, didn't he? Uh, If he was using the the Ford Foundation's money uh, to study the impacts of McCarthyism in academia because he was interested in fighting the witch hunts against professors. So he didn't want college professors to be called out as socialists or communists, right? That's what this is about because uh, apparently McCarthy... Uh, well, it, it was later revealed that McCarthy was right about just about everything he said decades later. But at this point, uh, they didn't want uh, people to really uh, be all gung-ho about communism or against socialism, so to say, because that's what largely many of these social sociologists and, uh, you know, professors at universities and stuff these were kind of the ideals that they were looking for, right? They, they were very much interested in so- socialism. They believed socialism was the way forward, and uh, they didn't want to be called out on the carpet or being accused of being communists. So that's why he used his, this, uh, this study here, this grant from the Ford Foundation, uh, to study the impacts of McCarthyism in academia. Uh, he wanted to make sure that the academic world, the colleges and universities were not uh, put under the microscope as far as this goes. And we we see the results of that today, even still today, uh, because, you know, college campuses and university campuses are some of the most liberal places on earth, aren't they? With the most liberal politics and the most uh, leftist uh, type ideologies out there. Uh, So, you know, that being the case... We could see uh, how this study into the idea of McCarthyism affecting academia was utilized by various folks uh, with the, these socialist ideals to uh, leverage things in that certain direction and keep this under wraps, okay? Uh, the battle against McCarthyism, and, and McCarthy was actually ostracized, wasn't he? I mean, you see how he was treated publicly uh, through that time frame, if you go back and study any of these things, you know, basically he was saying that uh, the United States uh, in government and academia and all these different circles was infiltrated by communists, by uh, pro-communist uh, uh, encampments here, right? And he was 100% correct, but that didn't come out until decades later. But they didn't want to panic uh, in, you know, the, the masses, so they, they kind of made this look ridiculous. They made this idea look ridiculous, and they highly polarized it and fought back against it. Uh, and a lot of that ties back to these types of studies, 
right? They were able to study the concepts of uh, what was McCarthy talking about, how did it affect people's opinions, and how can we fight back against that? And they successfully went ahead and did so. And they ridiculed the whole idea and kind of blackballed McCarthy. And anybody that, uh, you know, lined up with his, uh, his thought process there, they, they made it look like a ridiculous bunch of nonsense. Uh, so that's essentially what had happened with that. But uh, that being the case, this guy, Lazarsfeld, had a big impact in that whole situation uh, because of this. But uh, let, let's read on here. This thesis explores the two projects by Lazarsfeld's research group. In both of these circumstances, research motivated for political concerns had little, if any, political impact for reasons which shall be explored in this thesis. And I'm going to pause there. So he's saying that the research motivated for political concerns had little, if any, political impact. That is total poppycock, folks. <laughs> it certainly had impact. Uh, somebody somewhere used this information in ways to steer public opinion on things. Of that, we can have no doubt today when we see the shape of the world since the 1960s and the 1950s when uh, many of these studies had taken place. So let's, let's read on here. As Lazarsfeld's career progressed, he attached increasing importance to the idea that the work be value-free. His motivation for performing sociological research changed from the idea that one can change the world if one has enough data to thinking that if one has enough data, one might be able to describe to future generations what a part of the world was like. And I'm going to pause there, folks. I'm going to read that again. Okay? Keep this in mind. And uh, I'll translate it a little bit here for everybody. His motivation for performing sociological research changed from the idea that one can change the world if one has enough data to thinking that if one has enough data, one might be able to describe to future generations what a part of the world was like. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pause there once again. So you see, his original idea was he wanted to change the world by compiling massive amounts of data, right? He was convinced if you can collect enough data, you can change the world. Well, it says here that uh, he, his view later changed, right? I don't think it did, but uh, this guy says his view later changed, and his idea was that if you have enough data, then you could describe to the, the people of the future what a part of the world was like at a certain time. <laughs> Poppycock. <laughs> Poppycock. That's not what it's about. Data collection has always been about control. Okay, it's always been about manipulating people. It's not about trying to accurately describe something, a historical event. Not to the, a certain degree. That's, that's not the pure reason for sociology. That's not why people get involved in sociology. Primarily, people get involved in sociology, or social engineering, if you will, because they want to change something. They want to change people's behaviors. They don't want to just record what people's behaviors were at a certain time, just so it's written down for posterity's sake, and that's what this guy's claiming. It's nonsense, folks. Nonsense. There's always, always, always an ulterior motive. And, the, you know, the, this guy's motivation was not simply to record for posterity the way people behaved at, in a certain time and place. Right? So, let's read on here. 
Lazarsfeld's disillusionment in the power of social science research, possibly the result of seeing the powerlessness of the projects explored in this thesis, was shared by a generation of social scientists. I'm going to pause there. So basically, he's saying here that the guy was lamenting that, uh, well, at the time he was doing this research, well, it was just research and it wasn't really useful and they, they didn't really effectuate any real social change, did they? Uh, so this was the idea of the sociologists. They were all broody and upset that they couldn't change the world just then and there. That's because they weren't thinking in the long term at that point, folks, if that's the case. And I don't believe that's true. I think that this is just uh, this guy's take on, uh, you know, some information that he came across doing this, uh, this, this paper, this thesis. And uh, he was trying to explain away this guy's behavior. So uh, he says the guy became disillusioned with sociology because it wasn't getting the results he originally had wanted. So he reserved himself to just recording information and data for posterity's sake, right? That's, that's the implication we get here. But uh, And that the whole generation of social scientists with him did the same thing. They, they weren't doing social engineering at all back then, right? <laughs> no, not at all. Let's read on. Paul Lazarsfeld made many major contributions to our substantive understanding of contemporary society. His early work on the consequences of the mass media and his unprecedented study of the impact of McCarthyism in American academic life are just a few examples of these substantive contributions. Both of these research projects were funded for specific political reasons. Neither project accomplished its objectives, yet both of them were seen as success by the funding organizations and aided the furthering of Lazarsfeld career. And I'm going to pause there. Of course they did. See, that's the whole problem. This guy, okay, the, the guy who wrote this paper here is claiming that Lazarsfeld was disillusioned and upset uh, because... He didn't achieve the goals that he set out to do with his social engineering research that he was doing here. Well, it says here that the fa the funding organizations, they were really happy with it, and they saw it as being a success. And it was a success, right? And this also helped to further the guy's career. Uh, the problem becomes then, folks, maybe the guy was truly disillusioned and upset because he realized he became the dupe, Okay. He became the slave to these funders, right? These people funding, these organizations funding the research. Maybe he realized now he is indebted to these people. If he wants to keep the money for the research rolling in and wants to keep the research going, he's got to research the things that they want and produce the information that they want. And, and maybe... Just maybe, he got a little disillusioned by this because maybe he realized what was going on and had a conscience, after all. <laughs> and, you know, was, was kind of uh, concerned that this could be used in all the wrong ways, right? So maybe that's what was going on, to be fair. Maybe, uh, you know, this gentleman who wrote this paper might be correct about some of that. So let, let's read on here. The details of these studies provide insight into Lazarsfeld's intellectual development and a key element of the intellectual background for the failures of the large-scale social research and social engineering projects of the 1960s and 70s. And I'm going to pause there. There it is. <coughs> Up until this point, uh, I mean largely these people will refer to it as sociology or social research. Well... Right here, 
it says social research and social engineering projects of the 1960s and 1970s. This was an active thing, not a passive thing, right? They, they, they tried to prevent or present these sociological studies and things like that as strictly research or something passive, right? It's not. It's active. It's a social engineering campaign. They use these to change people's behaviors. That's what these studies are for, right? So let's continue on. We're going to the next part here. And this next part of the paper here starts with a quote from Paul F. Lazarsfeld. And he says, quote, We study the past in order to master the future. End quote. Now let's read on. Why do people, why do, people do sociology? Why are there sociologists? Why does society sponsor sociological research? At one level, sociologists are trivia gatherers. They are people who enjoy discovering interesting facts about groups of people. The cynical answer to the question, why do people engage in sociological research, is that other people pay them to. Sociologists are individuals who have successfully convinced society to fund their hobby of trivia gathering. In order to maintain this funding, sociologists must produce, and usually publish, reports that convey the findings of their research. The complete cynical answer is that sociologists do research in order to publish reports so that they can earn money to do further research. It is a never-ending academic circle, and I'm going to pause there. <clears throat> I think this guy just nailed it. That, that, that is a very apt description of all of this, but uh, beyond that... There are other people that take this data and use it for other purposes, okay? So he's claiming most sociologists, they, they just, they, they are interested in gathering trivia, right? They just like to gather data. Uh, and they've convinced other people to let them do this and fund them to do this. Uh, so therefore, they go and they gather the data that uh, these uh, certain people that are funding things want. And they do this just so that they could further do research, right? so that they could keep going. And it's an endless, vicious cycle. That's pretty much what he's saying here. And uh, that's partially true, but the thing is, this data is the most valuable thing that there is. And especially today, because uh, we, we live in the era of big data, and data is king. And right now, the data collecting capacity of technology and of uh, different institutions and some of these social engineers is unbelievable unbelievable so that being the case they could use this data in many ways that we don't even understand completely and they could do so to uh, make real changes in society that they want and that's why these uh, types of uh, positions as sociologists and researchers in in these social spheres are so important and why they are so heavily funded by different uh, ones of these uh, types of uh, groups like the, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation and all of these different types of uh, philanthropic organizations because the information that they gather from this is just outstandingly important and can be used uh, in order to push different agendas. And that's what, at the end of the day, has been done and is being done. And we'll get a little further through this paper here, and we'll, we'll start to see a little bit more of how the dots all connect. And it'll start talking more about the early days of this. Uh, so let's move on here. 
there are other, less cynical answers to the question. Sociology can be thought of as a tool for understanding society, but this presupposes that society is difficult to understand. Why should society be hard to understand? Perhaps society is simple to understand, and people who state otherwise have a personal stake in collecting funds for quote-unquote studying society. Alternatively, the process of studying society may in turn complicate society by subtle feedback mechanisms which happen to benefit the sociologists who make their living from studying the quote-unquote complexity of society. And I'm going to pause there for a second. So notice, he says here that alternatively, the process of studying society may in turn complicate society by subtle feedback mechanisms, and that's very important. There's that cybernetics approach once again. Subtle feedback mechanisms. This is exactly what it's about. It's about social engineering. It's about engineering society to behave in ways that these social controllers want. And that's exactly what this does. So even though society may not necessarily be as complex a thing uh, if, you know, viewed from a natural perspective, once you start introducing different data into the society or, or different data points and create these feedback mechanisms that makes the society more complex, well, you make the society complex, but at the same point, you're putting these feedback mechanisms in, right? So if you have this feedback mechanism, this creates what's called a causal circuit, okay? So if you in, inject some information at a certain point in the circuit, um, what happens is that information gets fed all the way through the loop and comes back. And then you could monitor the outcomes of how this affected the whole system. This is a very basic cybernetics principle. And I hope I'm not losing people with that description. But what happens is when you insert new information into the naturally existing system, it creates this causal circuit idea. So it makes a change in the system, which feeds back through the entire system and affects the rest of the system. And then you could get the output from what you had put into this to see how it affects the system. And you can make changes with that in very subtle ways. That's why it's talking about this subtle feedback mechanism here. All right. Uh, so this being the case, this uh, makes uh, the social group that you're trying to uh, manipulate more controllable uh, because you insert a certain different type of a stimulus or uh, type of different, let's say, uh, factor into the group. And in so doing, it affects the, the whole group, and uh, this information or this, this new stimulus in the group feeds all the way through the group and comes back out as an output, which you can monitor and control and quantify. And that's what it's all about. It's about quantifying different behaviors, per se. And that's what sociology is about. It's about the quantification of these different types of behaviors and responses. It's a response mechanism. Okay, so this creates that feedback loop. Uh, so in a sense... It makes it into a controllable system if you're monitoring the whole system. Uh, now, by and large, this would be like looking at uh, the group behavior or the, the behavior of the public because uh, this is uh, one of the premises of mass psychology. Okay, Mass psychology works differently than individual psychology. Uh, so basically, sociology is the study of mass psychology and how you can use different feedback mechanisms to control that. Uh, so essentially, that's what social engineering is, and that's what we're seeing here. Uh, not to get off on that side tangent too much, but I, I thought that was important to try to uh, talk about here. 
Anyway, let's read on. Nevertheless, society seems complicated to the author. This thesis will assume that society is complicated and that sociological research does convey some kind of useful information about the current state of the world. But why understand society? At one level, understanding society is an academic goal in and of itself. Alternatively, we might wish to understand society for the altruistic purpose of making the world a better place, quote-unquote, fixing society. <laughs> I'm going to pause there. So you see, many people get involved in these social sciences or sociology, uh, this kind of thing, because they, they really think they want to do good, and they, they really think they can do good with it, that they can fix society. They could fix all the problems of society. Uh, but what they don't understand is that uh, by taking down this position and learning how to manipulate people in these various ways, they further the problems with society. It doesn't fix anything. It just creates more artificial uh, response to stimulus, right? Stimulus response. It creates art more artificial stimulus response mechanisms. Uh, and all that does is complicate the system or make the system more complex and then it will need an ever ne never ending succession of different feedback inputs and outputs in order to keep the system uh, moving in the direction that the social engineer would like it to go uh, so you see it's a big complicated process that they make but it's all about control at, at the end of the day now if they weren't interested in control and they were just interested in say uh, recording things for posterity's sake or recording data for posterity's sake then they would just observe and record rather than introduce many of these ways of quantifying behavior and that's that's what's done here that's why they do these studies there's nothing to study if you're just observing right if you observe and record that's not really studying anything, is it? That's making observations about behavior, which is a smaller part of the study idea of it. Because then they learn, well, what causes this? It, it, see, it's, it's all about determining cause and effect for different behaviors. And uh, this is the whole bottom line of the scenario. You only study this stuff if you intend to use it for something. Uh, so... You know, as we see here, many people get involved with this because they want to, quote-unquote, fix society. So they think they're doing something good by doing this, by manipulating people. And that's, by and large, uh, most of how a lot of this gets done is by well-meaning people that don't know any better, right? They're just taught from the, the top down, the whole pyramid power structure thing, uh, where the only one who really knows what's going on is the person at the top of the power pyramid. And uh, you're only given compartmentalized data for your job. Uh, so these people, they think they're doing a good thing by recording this information, this data, and passing it on to psychologists, sociologists, people who would, in turn, try to come up with solutions for various problems that are seen in the data set and introduce new ideas into the feedback loop system. Uh, so that being the case, that's essentially what is done with um, much of this science, this social engineering. And we'll get to the broadcast media part of it here very soon. We're getting there. Bear with me. Let's continue reading. If we want political power, understanding society might be the first step to controlling it, you think? 
Yeah, let's read on. Sociological research might be usable to gain direct control over society or people in general. Advertising research, for example, a very specific form of sociological research, is funded because companies believe they can use it to produce advertisements which make people buy more of a particular product. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Remember, this paper was written in 1987. 1987, and it's talking about ideas from 1930s through the 1960s. Okay, so understand what's being said here. Um, advertisements to make people buy more particular prod products. Tailor-made advertisements for people. <clears throat> Facebook, anybody? Anyway, let's read on. Campaign research is funded because politicians believe that their advertisements will make people vote in a particular fashion. Other examples of belief in, in the power of social... Uh, what's this word? Sorry, folks. Other examples of belief in the power of SR, or social research, abound. Most of these motives for doing sociology make the assumption that sociology actually tells us something about the society that sociologists allegedly study. Sociology might not. Sociology may tell us nothing about the world except that there are sociologists in it. <laughs> I'm going to pause there for a minute. Uh, so this guy is really, really using the plausible deniability uh, kind of factor here for this stuff, suggesting sociologists, uh, they, they don't really do anything, right? Uh, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Let's read on. Society may be too complicated and contain too many interacting variables to allow it to be studied within the context of current sociological methodologies, or any for that matter. And I'm going to pause there and say, this was before the age of supercomputers, okay? Uh, computer science was really in its early stages still in 1987. All right, we didn't really have the same type of uh, computer technology like we have now. It was a lot more primitive then, and I don't think this guy really understood necessarily what things would look like in just a couple more decades uh, with the data collection capacities and uh, you know the the use of algorithms and and things like this. So I think he was really, truly underestimating what could be done with the, these type of data methodologies that Lozarsfeld uh, had founded, right? I don't think he saw the big picture. Anyway, let's read on. Alternatively, society may be too simple, and the content of SR reports may consist mostly of artifacts introduced from the particular manner in which the study was conducted. Yet even if sociology is of no practical use, if it cannot be used to understand, fix, or control society, the reports which sociologists publish still have political impact, especially in the 20th century American political system. Reports which claim to explain the state of people's lives and provide motives and causes for people's actions affect our view of the world, often whether we believe the report to be founded on sound sociological methodologies or not. Indeed, denial of sociological findings has occasionally become a herald for people to rally about, too. Additionally, there is a political value in conducting research, regardless of the findings. Studying a topic lends an air of importance and authority to the topic itself, especially before conclusions are made public. 
Reports leave a lasting intellectual heritage, which lets future students grapple with the intellectual and moral questions raised and write papers on the subjects. The idea that sociologists primarily gather data for other academics, notably historians, was proposed by Lazarsfeld in his essay Obligations of a 1950 Pollster to a 1984 Historian. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Is that loaded or what? 1984 Historian. Uh, So Lazarsfeld, this guy says here, wrote an essay called Obligations of a 1950 Pollster to a 1984 Historian. And uh, he's claiming here that uh, sociologists largely do the work that they do for posterity's sake to be recorded for historians to use later. (laughs) This is laughable. Okay. I'm sorry. How gullible do we look? Okay, sociologists do not do this kind of research just for the sake of writing it down in a little paper and setting it aside for future historians to use for some purpose. Okay, now maybe they do do the research for somebody else to use for some purpose, but I don't think they're truly that ignorant to understand that, uh, you know, it's not what it's cracked up to be here. All right. I don't think most sociologists are that ignorant to believe that somebody's not going to use it like as soon as possible, that they're just going to put write it down for future purposes, just for historians to look at, right? That doesn't make any amount of sense whatsoever, especially when most of them get involved because they want to, quote-unquote, fix society. Uh, so that being the case, that's, that's kind of a, uh, that, that's a cop-out in my view. So this guy (laughs) says here that uh, Lazarsfeld wrote this basically for that purpose. This is a cop-out. Lazarsfeld probably wrote that because he was looking for plausible deniability. Uh, This guy who wrote this uh, research paper here probably said that because he's just following what uh, the sociologists here said or are claiming, and he probably legitimately believes that... uh, This is a true thing, because he doesn't know any better, right? He doesn't know about uh, the science of social engineering and how it ties to the cybernetics methodologies and how there are people at these various groups that fund this sociological research that use this information to socially engineer society to behave certain ways, okay? So he's thinking in terms of this gets written down for historians later so that they have some view of what was going on in society and you know it might get muddied into some political waters with different things at points but that's really immaterial so that's what this guy seems to be thinking (coughs) excuse me let's read on historians can use findings from past sociological research to substantiate their claims and explore circuitous causes and effects Particularly in the field of public opinion analysis, sociologists, especially since mid-1930s, have made possible new forms of historical analysis. Okay, going to pause there. This is where things get important. Okay, being able to have new forms of historical analysis allows you to uh, determine uh, various aspects of uh, different things so that you can maybe make accurate predictions about outcomes. Uh, based upon certain historical uh, historical facts, right? And how they line up with some modern current events going on, perhaps. So that's what this implies. <coughs> Let's read on. 
Sociological reports also form a kind of message to future academics of what the present is like. They become a form of immortality, a bit of the world that will be preserved after the present is lost. Reports preserve the wisdom of current scholars for future generations to read and learn from. Additionally, reports and preserved raw data allow reanalysis of issues without the biases of current events, coloring judgment and evaluation. Sociological research can be used to generate political documents. These documents can then be used to help introduce change within the standing political system. Usually, these documents are used as support material in the context of a larger initiative, although they may also be forerunners of a larger initiative designed to attract supporters. So I'm going to pause there. So essentially what he's saying is... uh, um, some of these, this research can be used to steer political agendas. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. So this has a real-world effect, okay? This is not just things recorded for posterity's sake, for historians to look at later and understand what was going on at the time, okay? Uh, this is true social engineering, okay? If you're, you're affecting people's behaviors or their political views uh, by using data to uh, manipulate their their opinions on things. That's the very definition of social engineering, isn't it? So uh, we could see that that's what's being said here, essentially. Um, Even though they try to make it look like that's not what sociology is about. But they understand, okay, that maybe that's not what their intention is by conducting these studies or collecting this data, but somebody somewhere is using it for political purposes. That's being acknowledged here. Okay, so this just sets up the plausible deniability angle for the sociologists, right? The people who actually do the the footwork, the hard work of this stuff, the data collection, all right? And a a lot of that today is done by computers, okay? The data collection is largely done by computers now. And uh, it's collated by algorithms rather than actual sociologists sitting down and, and trying to put this material together in a, a, uh, a linear type form. Okay? So when we understand that, we can see how this has advanced exponentially since this time in the writing of this document and uh, the work of Lazarsfeld, who it's talking about here largely. But let's read on. <coughs> Politically, SR findings can serve one of three purposes. They can call to action those who already know the facts. They can provide the facts for those who have already been called to action. And they can keep already existing programs in action. Examples of these political uses of sociological research are many, indeed. When we think of the positive uses of SR, that is social research, these are the ones that we usually think of. In research directed towards political goals, the quality of the research methodology usually has little impact on the influence of the study. Rather, it is the degree to which the SR findings agree with quote-unquote ordinary knowledge, people's internalized non-scientific impressions of the world around them, and the willingness of politically active people to believe such findings that determines the degree of their impact of the work. And I'm going to pause there. So essentially, what he's saying here is it's not important, right, what data that uh, they, they can garner from these studies. It's how it affects the regular person. 
And that, by and large, is the true thing that they're studying. That's what sociology truly studies, is how it affects people, right? How information affects people, not the outcomes of the particular studies. Uh, A lot of these studies are put together expecting certain outcomes, and when they don't get those outcomes, well, that's considered a failure. But in sociological terms, it's still a success because now they've further uh, figured out how to manipulate people. Uh, by receiving back this this failed feedback. See, this this further uh, reinforces the feedback loop principles, right? So you understand what works and what doesn't work. So by finding out what doesn't work, well, now you could scratch that off your list and realize this did not work. So now we could try something else. So now we know the result if this input is put in the feedback loop, the output that we get from it. It's a failure. It's not what we're looking for. And that's essentially what goes on with this. It was a it's kind of a trial and error process in many ways. So uh, that being the case, that's that's kind of what's being talked about here. And this has everything to do with the cybernetics approach to these things. Cybernetics simply means uh, the, the study, the scientific study of whole systems and how they operate. Uh, it doesn't have... Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't have anything to do, but largely when you hear the term cybernetics, you're thinking in terms of robotics and artificial intelligence and computers and all of that stuff, which is a a small part of it. But cybernetics is actually based uh, and derived from a Greek word that's called kybernetes, which actually means steersman or pilot. It's systems control. Uh, Cybernetics is the study of whole systems control. So it's about studying and controlling systems, right? And that's what much of this early sociological research has been used for. It's been further plugged into cybernetics research and used for the purpose of controlling the whole system. And in this case, that would be society, right? Society would be the system, and this works for everything. You could apply cybernetics uh, methodologies to anything, you could apply it to the money system, the monetary system. You could apply it to uh, computers. Uh, you could a- apply it to biology. You could apply it to psychology. You could apply it to anthropology, sociology, and uh, the combination of sociology, psychology, and cybernetics approach is what birthed the idea of social engineering on a massive scale, which has been going on now since bare minimum at least the 1920s. Probably far before that, too, to some degree or another, without uh, actually defining uh, exactly what this is. But, uh, you know, make no mistake about it, the social engineering of society is the goal here. And that's what's being done with this stuff. Uh, So that's kind of what we're looking at here today. And this Lazarsfeld guy and some of his cohorts were very important early pioneers in this work. So let's continue on here. (coughs) Excuse me. The History of Sociology Lazarsfeld traced the current state of sociology in the United States as the result of three distinct phases of development. Initially, sociology arose in conjunction with the Great Reform Movement following the Civil War. At the time, sociology was heralded as a way for applying the techniques of science, which had already proven themselves to be powerful and successful, to the problems of society. And I'm going to pause there. So essentially what they're saying here is they were trying to apply scientific method uh, to quantify subjective things and objectify them to make them more controllable and predictable. So that's essentially what's being said here. 
The proponents believed that by scientifically studying the problems of society, solutions would automatically suggest themselves. Lazarsfeld saw Columbia University's establishment of a graduate department in sociology in 1894 as an example of this, a move on the part of Columbia partly designed to cure the evils of New York City, to use the city of New York as a living laboratory. I'm going to repeat that. That's a brilliant observation and a very important uh, uh, fact here to point out. I'm just going to repeat that. In 1894, as an example of this, a move on the part of Columbia, partly designed to cure the evils of New York City, to use the city of New York as a living laboratory, and they still do that to this day. Where was the first phase of the rollout of COVID-19 in 2020? New York City. That was the hardest hit portion of the entire country here. It's a laboratory, folks. A sociological laboratory. That's why it's always, uh, you know, one of the biggest, most mentioned ci cities in anything. It's, it's out there in the entertainment media. Always uh, one of the first and foremost, uh, you know, in, in pop culture references, everything. Uh, it's all about social engineering. It's a laboratory, right? They use this as one of the experimental models for things to come in other places. So if you want to know what's coming to a part of the country near you, look and see what's happened in New York, New York City. See what they've done there. See how they've implemented different things there to understand where it's going next. It's the big laboratory, see? this is It's the social experiment. So they were looking for the reactions from the New Yorkers uh, to the various uh, you know things that they were trying to establish there and roll out there in order to understand better what kind of reactions they'll get on a larger scale from the rest of the public okay it's it's the the uh, it's the lab okay it's the living laboratory as they say here so that's an important concept to keep in mind but let's not get hung up on that idea for too long let's continue on here uh because we're we're coming up on on time here pretty soon i want to uh, wrap this up in probably about 15 more minutes during the second phase of sociology, sociologists attempted to increase their academic prestige and recognition. This f phase is marked by an emphasis on methods and methodology and a quest for legitimacy in the eyes of other academics, especially other social scientists. These sociologists stressed they could use the scientific method and hopefully achieve su successes similar to those of the natural sciences, even though their work was not strictly scientific. <laughs> I'm going to pause there. This has everything to do with trying to quantify something subjective, as I suggested earlier. That's exactly what it is. They're trying to quantify or measure something subjective that is not objectively scientifically measurable, and produce a result with it. Uh, that's why it says it's not strictly scientific, because it's not. It's experiential. It's subjective, right? Uh, and this is just another viewpoint you could take to uh, make observations, right? Scientific method is only one data point, in a sense. It's, it's, it's one method of observing things, and it doesn't always hold true, uh, because in order to be uh, useful scientific method has to observe something that is objective and you know clearly measurable and, and clearly delineated whereas something subjective or experiential is not necessarily that so you can't really view these things with the lens of science or scientific method 
Uh, and that, that's wherein some of the problem lies because they're trying to fit it in this neat little box where they could quantify this. And that's what, uh, you know, social engineering and cybernetics methodologies are all about. Uh, so let, let's read on here. Lazarsfeld was a product of the second phase in sociology. The research projects examined in this thesis are examples of research conducted with a phase two emphasis on methodology. Coincidentally, the second phase of sociology also marks the birth of market research, essentially sociology applied for commercial purposes. The public opinion analysis techniques, which had discovered why citizens voted for a particular candidate, could be used just as well, perhaps better, to discover why people purchased a particular brand of soap. The advent of radio created vast audience for manufacturers to sell their products to, and the manufacturers used market research to determine the most effective forms for their advertisements to take. Market research was also used by radio broadcasters to demonstrate audience size to potential advertisers. And I'm going to pause there for a second. Now we're getting where the rubber meets the road as far as how social engineering and broadcast media are interrelated uh, because a lot of this was born from the researches of this Paul Lazarsfeld and some of his associates. Okay, They're the ones that made these determinations. They were able to uh, uh, figure out, essentially, what kind of an audience size radio could reach and, secondly, how it could be used to manipulate their behaviors and buying habits. All right, so uh, let's let's read on here. But that's the second phase of sociology as described by the, the gentleman who wrote this paper. The third phase of sociology, the one we are living in now, is marked by an increase in sociology contracted by non-sociologists for specific purposes. This phase began a few years before the Second World War, when it became increasingly clear that somehow the United States would become involved. By then, writes Lazarsfeld in the book he published shortly before his death, social research activities had become so ubiquitous that the government turned to social researchers as a matter of course. The research projects examined in this thesis are examples of research funded with a phase three emphasis on results. We now live in a world in which social research has become pervasive. And then it goes on here to quote... Uh, from one of Lazarsfeld's books here. And it says, quote, A museum faced a decline in attendance and called on researchers to determine the reasons for the decline and for ideas on how to attract support for its program. The establishment of social research in the Navy was attributed to the fact that rapid technological change brought new and more complicated forms of social organization which were more difficult to manage. Research in the trading stamp industry developed during the 60s, when trading stamps came under increased attack from consumers. A volunteer welfare agency forced to adopt a completely new program initiated research to find ways to retain the support of its workers. With the advent of a new type of warfare, the Army Air Force confronted the need for dramatic increase in trained air crews, and research was carried out. Settlers in a national forest in Louisiana set fires to areas containing new seedlings, and the Forest Service undertook research. And that's quoted from Lazarsfeld and Wright's 1975, page 129. And that would be one of the books that this gentleman wrote. <coughs> anyway, let's read on. 
So the, the author of this research paper goes on to say, this thesis tells the story of how two research projects by social sciences' father of methodology, Paul F. Lazarsfeld, funded for Phase 3 concerns, did not accomplish their stated goals but were still considered successful projects, partly by evaluating them under Phase 2 criteria, partly by appreciating the studies for the historical record which they formed. Okay, and... Now we get into the meat of things, all right? Because the next part of this research paper, this uh, this thesis that this gentleman wrote uh, for MIT to get his bachelor's degree in sociology, is called Motivations for Funding Radio Research. And this is where the rubber meets the road with this, folks, because social engineering had a, a vast, vast upgrade with the advent of these different technologies, particularly uh, with the onboarding of radio becoming a common thing, and then television later became the greatest mind control tool ever conceived. And now we have computers, the internet, social media, all of that, and the data collection points of all of this stuff combined together. It makes for an unbelievable control grid of sorts, a data collection grid, uh, that makes the the steering of society doable with just the flick of a switch. And <clears throat> that's largely what's being done today. But let's get into the history here a little bit as far as this goes. So, it says here, Motivations for Funding Radio Research. The Linz 1929 study Middletown makes three references to radio. The first mention notes that mechanical inventions such as the phonograph and radio are further bringing to Middletown more contacts with more kinds of music than ever before. The second mention in a footnote compares percentages of girls and boys attending movies, listening to the radio, and playing musical instruments with and without their parents. Middletown tells the story of the town that the automobile made. Eight years later, the Lynns published their follow-up to Middletown, Middletown in Transition. Middletown in Transition contains extensive references to radio. During the eight years between the publication of the two studies, radio became a major factor in American life. Middletown in Transition tells the story of the town that radio made. And I'm going to pause there for a second here, folks. Radio kind of got onboarded really fast to the American public. It became uh, cheaper for people to, to have and own at a certain point. And within the, the time space of about a decade, it revolutionized uh, the way people were receiving information. Uh, and that's what this is largely about. And this is one of the early studies on how radio had really transformed this small portion of society, this middle town. Middletown study, right? This was a study of one small town. Let's read on. <coughs> Shortly after radio's introduction into Middletown, radio ownership and radio broadcasting exploded. By the mid-1930s, Middletown's lone radio station had grown from a one-man, three-hour-a-day station to a 14-person, 14-hour-a-day station with a wide variety of programs and listeners. Likewise, ownership of radio sets jumped from one radio per eight homes in the business class households and one in 16 among working class homes to 46% of ownership across all classes. 
Not surprisingly, the growth of radio listening in Middletown was accompanied by a skewing of the town's broadcasts to programs of a more popular nature. Programs which broadcast organ music were replaced with those which broadcast popular hillbilly music. Sunday afternoon religious programs were canceled in favor of music shows. Children's hours with local juvenile performances have been dropped because nobody but the families of the children who perform was interested. Just what kind of role radio played, however, was ambiguous. Was radio a progressive force for social change, or was it merely reinforcing old patterns of behavior and taking up people's spare time? Was radio living up to its possibilities? In 1937, Lazarsfeld was contracted by the Rockefeller Foundation's program in the humanities to conduct a detailed analysis of the effects which radio was having on American society. The contract established the Office of Radio Research at Princeton University, later moved to Columbia University to perform a series of undirected inquiries into the impacts of radio on society. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. The Office of Radio Research at Princeton University was the organization that put forward the 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds on the public, and uh, it's also the entity that... Uh, pushed forward this um, this broadcast as being uh, um, portrayed in a way where it, it simulated uh, how things might happen in the real world, and it caused a panic. And one of uh, one of Lazarsfeld's uh, associates here, one of his uh, directors underneath him in this project, was a guy named Hadley Cantrill, and he wrote a book later. Uh, that talked about the invasion from Mars and how it panicked people. This was all done under the guise of a study, an academic study, uh, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay, This is the kind of influence that these people had on society. This was an early experiment to see if what they could get people to believe and act upon using this new, new tool, radio. Uh, so this was uh, one of the the important aspects of this. They, they were able to incite panic in people through the use of a radio broadcast portrayed as real news, when in fact it was a fictional story portrayed in a way where it looked like it was potentially real. So if you hadn't tuned in right at the beginning of the program and heard the disclaimer, you might have thought this was an actual thing going on in the world, and many people did. And it caused a mass panic. And this is recorded. And this is one of the early experiments that this uh, Office of Radio Research at Princeton University, which was later moved to Columbia University, what this is what they did. And there was a book published about that incident. And that's just one experiment that's been done that they largely try to sweep under the rug. But uh, this guy wrote a book about it. And you could find it out there on Internet Archive even. So... But let's read on here. The inquiries were designed to answer questions such as what individuals and social groups listen to the radio? How much do they listen and why? In what ways are they affected by their listening? The Rockefeller Foundation hoped to use this information to promote educational radio broadcasts, as will be shown later in this chapter. Okay, going to pause there. Yes, educational educational broadcast that's what they were interested in right well the rockefeller foundation also largely uh is the the place that funded 
our education system put our education system in place also largely uh, funded the medical field and you could see how many of these things are foundational to our modern society right uh, so you see who's pulling the strings at the beginning of the social engineering here all right in the early 20th century the late 19th century early 20th century and all the way on up to today you see how these things have been steered and directed by a select few people in various places namely the you know these philanthropic foundations uh with large funding that that uh steer agendas by using these social engineers these academics to uh try to put out these types of of studies and surveys to establish different motivations and different uh, types of agendas in society so to say so let's read on here <coughs> this next section talks about the rockefeller foundation from 1913 to 1929 in 1913, John D. Rockefeller Sr. established the Rockefeller Foundation to, quote, promote the well-being of mankind throughout the world, end quote. The foundation did not represent a radical step in giving for Rockefeller, but instead was a successive step along a philanthropic path which he had embarked in the 1870s. Before 1892, he had funded a large number of individual, small, independent philanthropic programs and religious missions. Under the advice of Frederick T. Gates, and I'm going to pause there, folks, Frederick T. Gates, who, uh, you know, is largely claimed to be no relation to Bill Gates, but I suspect probably is, if you really go back and look, um, <laughs> this was one of the primary advisors here, as we'll see, Frederick T. Gates. So let's read that again. Under the advice of Frederick T. Gates... Rockefeller's friend and principal advisor in the business and phil philanthropy, Rockefeller gradually adopted a system of scientific giving. Scientific giving consisted of giving large block grants to organizations which would then apportion the money into smaller amounts and give it to other groups. The Rockefeller Foundation was the culmination of this approach to scientific giving. Although Gates persuaded Rockefeller to establish the foundation as a lasting organization for the good of mankind, the United States Congress felt that Rockefeller was trying to find a way to prevent taxation of his fortune and preserve the estate after his death. Several bills introduced into the Senate to create the Rockefeller Foundation failed in 1910, 1911, and 1912. In 1913, weary of the fight to push the Rockefeller Foundation charter through Congress, Rockefeller's advice had the Rockefeller Foundation incorporated in the state of New York with little difficulty. For its first 15 years, the Rockefeller Foundation largely ignored the social sciences and turned its attention almost exclusively to projects related to medicine and public health, largely because of Gates' influence and the Foundation's initial highly negative experience in social science research. And I'm going to pause there. And also largely because they were eugenicists. Okay, and they wanted to fund eugenics and promote eugenics in America and through the use of the medical field. Uh, so that being the case, that's one of the reasons why, too. Let's read on. Gates' preoccupation with health and medicine was evident from the first meeting of the Foundation's trustees, at which he was reported to have said, quote, Disease is the supreme ill of human life, and it is the main source of almost all other human ills. 
poverty, crime, ignorance, vice, inefficiency, hereditary taint, and many other evils, end quote. And I'm going to pause there. Notice he said hereditary taint. That's eugenics talk, folks. That's code for eugenics. Let's read on. Curing diseases, Gates reasoned, would cure all other ills of society. Going to pause there again. Eugenics. That's the definition of eugenics, right? Let's read on. In his unpublished autobiography, he wrote, quote, As medical research goes on, it will find out and promulgate, as an unforeseen byproduct of its work, new moral laws and new social laws, new definitions of what is right and wrong in our relations with each other, end quote. And I'm going to pause there. That's moral relativism, folks. This is all secular humanist doctrine, isn't it? This is all Luciferian doctrine. This is all the rhetoric and talk of the mystery schools. The secret society groups, it's all the same thing. It's always based on eugenics. It's always based on moral relativism. It's always based on secular humanism and always about how man can be God himself. Right? That's what all of this stuff relates to. And these are the people that uh, are funding all the social engineering going on and uh, are using the information acquired, all the data acquired from social engineering um, programs and using them to steer and influence society. So we can see at the foundations here of what's been done to us and how it's still going on today. But let's read on. Therefore, the Foundation's projects were limited to four main categories. Improvement of public health services and facilities, study and control of specific diseases, training and education of professional men and women, and support of research in the medical and natural sciences. By 1920, the Foundation had, to all intents and purposes, been captured by doctors. Forays into the field of social science were discouraged by Gates, who felt strongly that any scatteration of the Foundation's efforts would be its downfall. When the Foundation finally did embark into the field of social sciences, it did so by funding specific strategic projects designed to have immediate results. The Foundation notwithstanding, by 1923 the Rockefeller Fortune was supporting the humanities and social sciences through other channels. In 1923, the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial, with its $74 million capital fund, made support of the social sciences. Economics, sociology, political science, and the related subjects, psychology, anthropology, and history. Its primary commitment... The memorial's funding also contributed to the late entry of the foundation into the social sciences. Although there was mention made of the possibility of merging the memorial with the foundation, until such a merger took place, there were strong incentives on both sides not to step into each other's fields of philanthropy. Under the directorship of Beardsley Rummel, the memorial pursued a program of funding projects in applied social science with presumed immediate benefits. In 1928, a major reorganization of the Rockefeller Philanthropic Organization took place. All of the programs of the four Rockefeller boards relating to the advance of human knowledge were consolidated under the Rockefeller Foundation. As a result of the reorganization, the Foundation's endowment rose to approximately $242 million. 
1928 Rockefeller Foundation had been created from one foundation, the former Rockefeller Foundation, which had been badly burned pursuing social science research, and another, the Memorial, which had already established a style of funding social science programs with presumed immediate benefits. When the new foundation began funding social science research, it naturally sought to locate and sponsor work which would be as pragmatic, as scientific, and as non-controversial as possible. All right. So that was a big mouthful, wasn't it? But that gives you a little background on the Rockefeller Foundation, the many things that it funded, and how uh, it got into the medical establishment first before it started pursuing social sciences or social engineering on a grand scale. But let's read on here. And we're almost finished, folks, so bear with me for a few more minutes. Dr. Edmund E. Day was named to head the Division of Social Sciences at the Foundation in 1929. The early years of Day's administration were spent funding studies of the Great Depression, which were intended to find immediate cures. Although many studies were funded, it quickly became apparent that it was too soon to diagnose such problems, and no panaceas were found nor any firm conclusions reached. However, the Division of the Social Sciences continued its practice of looking for immediate solutions to social problems. Day's administration soon adopted the practice of funding specific programs in the humanities and closely following them up rather than merely donating to prominent university funds which they were permitted to use more or less as they saw fit. The previous practice of funding had resulted in a large number of nondescript projects being pursued without the formation of cohesive respected research programs. <coughs> Day was succeeded in 1937 by Joseph H. Willits, who followed the practices established in Day's administration. Now, the next section here, and we're going to get through this rather quickly because this is the crux of the matter, and uh, it's what we'll close out on here. This section talks about possibilities for radio. The directors of Humanities Program were interested in the possibilities of using radio as a tool to promote education and cultural development. Radio and motion pictures were seen as active mediums of communication that were shaping and molding the social ideas and aesthetic standards of people. I'm going to pause there. They recognized radio and motion pictures were shaping people's behaviors and ideas. It was changing people's ideas and behaviors, folks. They recognized this. That's why they got in when they did with the social sciences. They knew they could use this to manipulate people and steer agendas that they wanted. Right? Let's read on. <coughs> but for foundation grants to have any real effect, they had to be strategically directed toward changing the practices of the broadcasting and the motion picture industries rather than directing or sorry, rather than directly funding alternative programming, which would be prohibitively expensive. So I'm gonna pause there. So essentially they recognized that they have to change the industries from the inside rather than try to put up uh, you know, say their own competition for this. Okay? That's what this means. So essentially, they decided to get their in, insert their own interests into the already existent uh, um, type of infrastructure that was there rather than try to start their own media broadcast type of a, a company or something of that sort. So that being the case, that's, that's what they did. They infiltrated 
the early uh, radio and uh, broadcasting centers here uh, with their monies. So let's let's read on here. Where did we leave off? The resources of the program in the humanities were meager when compared with those of the broadcasting companies. Only by change in their present practices, controlling as they do the facilities for communication and commanding as they do the mass audiences, will a wider educational or cultural usefulness be achieved in film or radio. Thus, the primary motivation of the Rockefeller Foundation's program in the humanities for funding radio research was to attempt to learn how to use radio as an educational force and then change the practices of the broadcast industry to make radio an effective tool for mass education, also called by Lazarsfeld the quote-unquote leveling up of socially needed information, end quote. The Rockefeller Foundation was not alone in its belief that radio could serve this function. Today, the 1930s desire to use radio as an educational force may seem a faddish response to a new technology. But in 1930, many observers believed that radio carried great promise to educate America. If serious radio listening could have an educational impact similar to that of serious reading, radio would make realizable a kind of mass education never before possible. When faced with the question of pursuing radio-based education rather than education in general, presumably with books, one response was, quote, that it is easier to promote serious listening than to promote reading beyond the scope it has attained so far, end quote. The hope was that by merely listening to the radio, people could become educated. And I'm going to pause there, folks. What do they mean, become educated? Think about that. This has nothing to do with education. This is indoctrination. Replace the word education anywhere that we just read with the word indoctrination and you'll understand what this is all about. You'll understand immediately. This is code talk, folks. Education. No. Indoctrination is more like it. Let's read on and we're going to call it quits here very shortly because we're just about up to the end of the portion here. Uh, that I wanted to get to. One reason it was thought that radio could bring the country to higher educational and cultural levels was because radio had a power, unlike any other medium, to reach directly into the home and expose people to new educational and cultural sources. In Advertising the American Dream, Roland Merchant writes that, quote, radio was the most tantalizing, yet most perplexing, new medium ever to confront advertisers. No other medium had offered such potential for intimacy with the audience, end quote. But advertisers were not alone in their belief that radio could be turned to their advantage. Educators thought that radio could be used to teach, and liberals tried to use radio to increase political participation. Radio could also reach Americans for whom educational opportunities had been previously out of reach. Another reason for hope in the reforming power of radio was the cultural origins of the radio sets themselves, which, quote, gradually spread from the wealthier classes to the less affluent, thus suggesting an initial elite audience, end quote, for quality broadcasts. Broadcasters and sponsors reinforced these attitudes towards radio by stressing that radio was a theater, a college, a newspaper, and a library. Marchand believes that radio adopted this educational veneer because of early radio's tendency to broadcast classical music with all its calming, enlightening, and culturally uplifting qualities. 
It only took a few years for the popular attitude towards radio to change from cultural uplift to easy listening pastime. Instead of acting in what educators believed would be the public good, radio broadcasters operated their stations to make profits and broadcast popular, revenue-generating entertainment programs, often to the exclusion of educational ones. Spokesmen from the public in magazines and newspapers were further incensed with the appearance of radio commercials, which the spokesmen considered annoying. The potential for radio to become a malevolent political force, especially in a democracy, overshadowed its possible educational uses. If radio could be used to influence the way people voted, then it might be possible for a relatively small number of people using radio to seize power or at least significantly alter the course of American politics. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, many observers believed that it might be desirable to implement controls in the broadcast industry to prevent such a scenario from materializing. And we're going to end it right there, folks. We're going to call it quits right there. I think that kind of conveys the information that you need to you. They understood full well what the implications of radio were. They knew that this was a way to uh, intimate with the audience like never before. And they also understood that uh, this medium would have a very real effect on social behaviors it's it had been demonstrated at this point and they they saw by and large that they needed to actually get within the broadcasting infrastructure in order to effectuate social changes in the way that they wanted to and of course they're speaking in terms of education right well that's code words folks it's about indoctrination not education it's about steering the public consciousness, not truly enlightening people or encouraging people to think or learn on their own. It's all about messaging, okay? It's all about getting only certain ideas out there. It's all about influencing people. It's marketing. It's PR. It's propaganda. It's all of those things. And that was some of the early phases of what's been done here. Uh, These were some of the uh, social engineers early on who decided to run different kinds of studies in these things and use this new broadcast technology to affect people's behavior. They saw its potential and decided to capitalize on that. And they did that under the guise of trying to prevent that from happening. Right? So we could see what's been done here and how it's always these same big players that are at the top of the scheme. Right? The Rockefeller Foundation the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, all of these, uh, you know, non-profit, philanthropic organizations that by and large always, always, always end up uh, with their monies funding these types of projects, all these social engineering types of projects. So that being the case, you know, we see once again uh, how some few people involved in certain projects here, which were funded by these large groups, had very major roles in socially engineering the masses to behave and think in certain ways. And that's largely what's been done. Uh, They used the guise of sociological studies, or social research as they called it, as the means for collecting data on people 
to see and to see what could be done to affect people's behaviors with this new medium of radio and they also furthered those ends to television and uh, make no mistake computers the internet social media all of these things it all plays on some of the very same principles and these are the foundations of where a lot of that came from so the the people controlling these ideas have always by and large had their own personal biases that they've inserted into the public consciousness with these different means okay so that being the case that's why we have things like eugenics and eugenics based ideas being pushed and promoted uh, you see how the Rockefeller Foundation was fundamental to a lot of those different things and how it's it's been carried forward through the social engineering of society and how they've used these technologies in those ways in order to bring these things to fruition in this world. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I think that's all I've got here for tonight, uh, just so we could have a little basic understanding of the history of how social engineering has been used in broadcast media and why. And uh, this uh, Paul... Lazarsfeld was one of the early pioneers in studying these things and actually promoting those ideas. And uh, we could see what's been done to society since. So uh, we'll, we'll look a little further into some more of these ideas and try to better understand uh, what social engineering is as a science and how it relates to the cybernetics principles, which I alluded to earlier uh, for those of you who may be new to the broadcast, we'll get a little bit more uh, heavily into the cybernetics methodologies here on some future broadcast so that we could better understand what's being done, how it's being done, and uh, exactly what's, what's the intention behind all of it. And intention is everything. And by and large, these people in positions of power today, these social engineers, their intention for the masses is not in the best interest of the masses. Let's put it that way. Uh, so anyway, folks, thank you for tuning in tonight. I hope you have a wonderful night, and we'll catch you next time. Have a good night.
Sí, sí. 